Welcome to the All About the Customer podcast, brought to you by Influtive, where we talk with customer-obsessed people to uncover how you can be more customer-focused. I'm your host, Dan Kalmar. Today, I'm joined by Gene Bliss. Apart from having a fantastic last name, Gene is a five-time chief customer officer at companies like Allstate and Microsoft. She's coached over 20,000 leaders, which is a mind-boggling number of people, and a best-selling author of multiple books, including Chief Customer Officer 2.0. She also runs her own podcast called the Chief Customer Officer Human Duct Tape Show. I wanted to sit down with Jean to learn more about this role that she's pioneered, the Chief Customer Officer. Organization-wide shifts don't happen without buying at the top. So if you're looking to make your company more customer-obsessed, you need the exec team behind you. But what is the Chief Customer Officer? And do you need one at your company? Let's find out. Hey, Jean, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. So good to be with you, Dan. So I want to start off talking about your own customer obsession journey. I don't think anybody, when they're a kid, imagines they'll grow up and being all about the customer and helping companies transform and be more customer-centric. I think it's the type of thing that you develop over the years as you realize you love seeing customers succeed. So tell us a little bit about you know why you care so much more about customers than the average person. It is weird. And I was always the square peg in the round hole kid, meaning I had these two sides of my brain that seemed to be able to fire simultaneously, you know, be creative, but find a way in an organized manner to explain things, even when I was very young. But a big influence when I was a kid was, and I talk about this a lot, is my dad had a Buster Brown shoe store. I grew up in Des Plaines, Illinois, and I watched him, as my six brothers and sisters did, watched him take a part in people's lives. He was selling shoes, but he was also guiding the young mom to the first pair that she put on her feet. He was there for every big occasion. He was there for every ballet recital. He was there for every event in people's lives. And it was not just the way he sold shoes, but his very open approach to it. We're Italian, so we're feeders. And my dad had a hot plate because he couldn't leave the store. And if you showed up while he was making sausage, he'd bring a fork of food out for you. So this was who I was anyway. Then I had the great fortune to have a great internship with Hart Scheffner and Marks. But fundamentally, what really created my career for me was answering an ad in the Chicago Tribune and going to Dodgeville, Wisconsin, early in Land's End's trajectory and joining them at first as the trainer for 2000 phone reps. But then after two years, Gary Comer, the founder, pulled me off the phones because I kept peppering him with so many ideas saying, okay, smarty pants, you are now the conscience of our company. We're growing 80% a year. As we grow, you make sure we're on straight and narrow that values and who we are as people keep building who we are to become as a company. So without that experience, without my dad, I wouldn't have gotten this cool thing that has become my life. I love that because when you think of customer service jobs like that, that your dad had where he's, you know, in person talking to people, I mean, that really is the true kind of customer centricity. I think in my career working in marketing, you're so disconnected from your customers a lot of times. Like you're literally not even talking to them a lot of the times, but what your dad is doing, he's face-to-face seeing the impact that he's having on people's lives and learning about their lives. So that's, I'm sure, a very formative experience for you. It was. And also, Dan, going to Land's End then, Gary Comer was an award-winning copywriter at Young and Rubicam. And then also Dick Anderson had had been at DDB Needham, was the president there. And we were surrounded by 
these amazing humans that wanted to make sure it was about the conversation first and the customer's life. And so in the original logo of Land's End, it's not in there any longer, though. It actually said Land's End Direct Merchants. And the word merchant was deliberately chosen, Dan, because a merchant is someone in the neighborhood curating and building a relationship. And so we were very deliberate about never losing the mindset that we needed to act like that neighborhood merchant. And so this blend of my dad and then being able to have that same kind of congruent experience lands and is trying to get back to where it used to be, especially when I was there and kudos for that journey. But when the work we were doing at this formative time, which was in the early 80s through the early 90s, and you know, a little bit beyond that, of course, we were so deliberate about what we would be and what we would not be. And that is quite honestly, the work I do now with companies. After Land's End, I said to myself, okay, I got this great skill. I was there for 10 years. I want to take this on the road. And so then I went to Mazda Motor of America. I wanted to work in a more complicated fish pond. Then I went to Coldwell Banker, where I led franchise services, the senior vice president of franchise services, because I wanted to also have B2B and a field force. Then I went to Allstate, where I was the first vice president of customer satisfaction and retention, reporting to the president of the personal lines company. And finally to Microsoft, because I wanted to have technology in my kit bag. And so if I hadn't had the dad I had and hadn't had the lands and experience I had, I wouldn't have had the kit bag to then learn how to constantly add to that in these different industries. So it's been a great, great journey that I feel really blessed to have had. It sounds like you really got off to the right start. Let's talk about this chief customer officer role, because, you know, you were really a pioneer in it. You were a chief customer officer before it was cool to be a chief customer officer. You not only literally wrote the book on it, but you rewrote the book on it. So let's define this chief customer officer role. So what is a chief customer officer and what do they focus on? And don't just say the customer. You know, it's interesting. Not every company needs one and not every company needs one for the total duration of their business. I'm just going to jump back in here because I was not expecting Jean to give this answer. She's the person who has written multiple books on the topic of the chief customer officer. So I'd half expect her to say that this role is always vital and every company needs one and you need to have one forever. But her reasoning was insightful. It's really about being the glue of the organization for a period of time where you need to really create a one company understanding of how you will grow and how you will not grow. It's about leadership. And so the first thing I always talk about is you need to unite the C-suite. That's the very first chapter in the CCO 2.0 book, which is the rewritten version of the book after I had been out consulting companies. I just made it more of a cogent methodology for folks. If you don't unite the C-suite, the silos will rule each agenda of the great well-intended silos will continue to kind of dissect and divide up what's done. And the customer is the one that will knit the experience together. Also, without this cogent connection, you won't have this values-based or earning what I call earning admirable growth approach that leaders who are stuck together can achieve. And so that's the first thing that you really need to do is Unite the C-suite in understanding why you're there, what customer goals you are there to help them achieve, get one version of the truth of where you are today, and build a common language set among leaders about how they will speak about the business and what's important to the business. Most people who jump into these roles don't do that first. 
Instead, they start whack-a-moling problems away. And that's interesting and fine, but that will only help you set back up to a level of what's required by customers in terms of reliability. That's number one. The first big job is uniting the C-suite of the organization. This was intriguing to me because it seems that Gene is saying that the CCO can almost be more of an idea or initiative rather than needing to be this singular person. Although it still can be that one person, it's more of an approach. When I've done the work, it's actually not that I am the one person leading it, but the job is to turn the aha lights on so it becomes owned by the rest of the organization. And it's about embedding behaviors. How will you, for a period of time, create a way of common language, common behaviors, common understanding, common focus, so that it does live back inside the operating areas and it does have a life of its own? Because of the way that corporations are created and organizations are created to allow people to achieve certain sets of things within their area of discipline, the traditional corporation creates divisions. And without this knitting together, which sometimes happens, there are companies that don't need one, right? And again, I'm not here to beat the drum that you have to have one. There's lots of organizations that are also able to achieve this with a group of people. The same activity needs to occur with a group of people. You have to have a common approach to how you behave, a common adherence to what your guidelines are for decision-making, a common ability to know the right KPIs to measure that are about customers' goals first, that adhere to a belief that that's how you will grow more financially prosperous. So it doesn't matter if it's one person or a group of people, it's more the behaviors of uniting that are critical. Something that's really interesting to me is you don't feel like every company necessarily needs it, but the even more interesting part is you maybe don't always need it. So let's start with that first part. How do you decide when this is the right approach to take for a company? Is it when you get to a certain headcount? Are you looking for certain inflection points in the company's growth? Like when, when do you feel like it's necessary to start doing this work and having maybe a dedicated person like a CCO in the company? Well, one of the things that I always urge people to do is what I call customer math. And it's recognizing, are you growing your customer base? Because the outcome of your behaviors and how you act should earn you more long-term customers and should earn you a deeper relationship with the customers that you have. And a lot of organizations aren't measuring that. They're measuring product sell-through or marketing specific action items or plans versus as a result of the experience we delivered in this month or quarter, or year. Here's how many new customers came to us. That's great. That's how well you were able to acquire. Terrific. But in the same period of time, here's how many we lost, or here's how many lessened their relationship with us. And so here's the net customer gain or loss, not only in number, but also in value that we earned in this period. And until companies do that, Dan, they really don't have a sense of the outcome of the totality of their efforts and how it impacts both their bottom and top line. When is the job done? You know, you mentioned, you know, maybe it's not a role that always needs to exist at a company. Like, is there commonly an exit point? Is it not common to have an exit point? And you always have this person making sure that they're continually writing the ship? The work for me is about becoming an elevated kind of company, a company that people think of differently because of how the organization behaves, how they deliver, how they work together. 
And when that becomes an organic and dynamic part of the organization and how people work together, the CCO can take their leave, or we've seen many become CEOs of parts of the organization or take another role in the organization. It's become a really fascinating jumping off point. You'll still have some activities that companies will need. They'll continue to still want to hear from customers. They'll want to continue to still go out and listen to customers. You'll want to have still creativity in customer experience design, but you may choose to have that skill set live in many parts of the organization or live in a centralized part of the organization in terms of providing the information. Again, the role for me is about turning on the aha lights creating a set of behaviors that then have stickiness so much so that if the CCO or the champion or the CEO leaves the building, that behavior survives. So that to me would be the litmus test. Jean has a well-thought-out approach to how organizations can drive the change she's mentioned here. She calls it the five competencies, and you can learn more about it at customerbliss.com slash the five competencies. And how do you get that stickiness, right? It makes sense when you have a dedicated person who's always, you know, trying to write that ship. But when that person leaves, like, what are those checks and balances that hopefully remain when that person leaves? Well, that's why the C-suite is critical. Is everybody on the same page and are all of these leaders leading in the same way? Here's a silly example. When I was at Land's End many years ago, we had hired a very, very good person to lead the operation of the call center. Many call centers at that time and still do use talk time as their key metric. That wasn't something we did or believed in. In fact, we violently opposed it because we believe that you don't clip the people on the phone. You teach them, you give them tools, and you trust them to have a good conversation, and you coach them on how to get to an outcome versus staring at some ticker. And so this man we had brought in from a major, major company, I won't say who, started hanging talk times on the outside of all the cubicles. And I, 25-year-old version of me, walked right behind him and yanked him down as he was hanging him. Oh my gosh, he was not, he was in a fury and did not like me. You know, sometimes people just wanted me to go away. I get it. And um, he goes, I am going to tell the CEO what is wrong with you. I said, let's do it. So we went and the CEO said, this is not how we do things here, you know, and forever more than that was something to look at, but it wasn't the leading metric. It wasn't what we coached people on. What needs to occur is that each leader within the silos are in congruence around what they measure, what they ask, and then that lives and breathes and that they get along together and that they come together on a monthly, bi-monthly basis to have these conversations about the customer's life. And when you have conversations about the customer's life versus let's look at the deck with the survey scores, it's a different intent and motivation driving how people work together and what you do. And so that's what I work to embed in an organization. And do you find the chief customer officer role is often an adversarial role. And so what I mean by that is, you know, certain roles naturally butt heads with people, right? If it's like a a health and safety person, they're going around saying, hey, I know this saves us money, but it's, you know, dangerous. So let's stop doing that. Is it the job of a lot of CCOs to be that 25-year-old Gene Bliss pulling down those signs for people? No. In fact, you know, what I learned along the way is that I need to check my ego at the door and the work is less about me. And that wasn't about me. That was a dramatic thing I did at the time. But it's not about that. It's about shedding a light 
bringing people together and then giving them the podium to take the credit. And so sometimes these roles get defined as the people who run the surveys and punitively walk around wagging their finger. They don't do that. And that's not the intent, but it can be interpreted that way that they're the people running the surveys and that's the beginning and the end of the role. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. The work is about, again, uniting, gaining commitment, getting understanding of the current state so we're all on a level playing field, and then giving people the tools to do the work and to take it forward. For me, it's not about governance. It's about hashing it out in a spirited way, giving people permission to talk among themselves and figure it out and bring customers in and understand and then build and rebuild and make sure this is a dynamic experience. But it's not about governance for complying with the survey results or governance around doing things a certain way. It's more about uniting and guiding and celebrating and achieving. You mentioned something earlier that I thought was interesting because I'm almost curious about the inverse of it. You talked about a lot of times the CCO might go on to be a CEO somewhere, maybe even at that company. What's the inverse of that? Like, Who are the types of roles that end up progressing into a CCO? Are they often heads of CS? Are they sales folk? Like, Who tends to move into this role? Sure. Great question. The most successful folks that I have coached are people who have run an operation. You need to have gotten dirt under your fingernails, run operations, run billing, run sales. But more importantly than that, you have to have proven that you've run it with a natural customer and employee focus. And you need to be a mature leader, executive. This is, again, not about what you're going to achieve as the next notch, but that you've already achieved so much in your career And you have these deep collaborative relationships in the business, and you can now go on to do this more collaborative, uniting role where you can check your ego at the door. So for example, one of the big B2B companies I coached, the guy was the president of North America. He became the global chief customer officer. Another person was the global executive vice president of sales. He became the chief customer officer. Another woman similar was the CTO. And again, because fascinating, who has a more comprehensive view of the organization? Probably the CFO, the CTO, not the CEO, because they get everything doled out to them in pieces. The CTO became a very successful chief customer officer. So there's a lot of paths there for anybody listening, trying to figure out how they get there. Right. But again, for me, the most successful people are mature. This isn't something they've they've achieved. Usually... Really successful people come from inside the company. We now have people who have been chief customer officers at many companies and they can move into other industries, but they have to be respected, collaborate, already have achieved something and run an operation. If you're just about strategy, but you haven't run an operation, it's harder because this work is about getting into the business. It's about people. It's about process. It's about reward. It's about communication. It's It's not about just running data and presenting it back out. It's about getting into the nitty gritty or what I call the underbelly of the business. And you've talked so much about how it's so important to have this top level support, right? Like this needs to happen across the executive team. So if you're somebody who's not part of an executive team and you're trying to make your company more customer centric, more customer obsessed what advice do you have for those people trying to pitch this to the top? Like, what are the types of things that executive teams need to hear? What are the resources they need to see to undertake this customer centricity? Sure. 
Well, the first thing is, and this kind of follows what I talk about in CCO 2.0, is you have to do the customer math. Bring the CFO in with you as part of that and do the math to show are you growing or losing your customer base. That'll give you your first measure. You can't cross-tab your way out of that. You can't refute its validity. You either keep more customers than you lose or you don't. Until you do that, people won't really get that this is about growth. Customer experience isn't about doing some great things because it's great to do them. It's a way to grow the business in a deliberate way. So that's number one. And also don't just pin it to your back. Get the CFO involved. Also find another great leader in an operating area who's already proving this approach to leadership and become a small team so that you're not pitching, but you're part of a movement of people. I love that. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely harder to ignore a lot of different voices than it is to, to just ignore one. Right. But that customer math is really critical. So you've worked with so many organizations over the years and where you've worked and through coaching, through your speaking. I think one thing that's really interesting to me is that every company, I think, says that they're customer obsessed. Everybody thinks that they're customer centric, even companies that are very obviously not. What do you think is the difference between companies that walk the walk and talk the talk when it comes to customer centricity? What's the difference between somebody who says that they're customer centric and the ones who actually are? Well, it's kind of the litmus test of how they handle things that go wrong. Also, their consistency and reliability. Are you getting what I call an it depends experience? When you interact with one part of the organization, does it depend on who you talk to, what channel, what product? Or is there a consistent feeling you get, a consistent experience you get, a consistent helpfulness and attitude from the employees. When that is consistent across the organization, then you've hit a company where it's embedded, where it's a part of the operating strategy of the business. And you know it when you feel it. Otherwise you have, you know, you go to a great hotel and the person who checks you in is wonderful, but the person who delivers your room service couldn't care less. And you'll know it immediately when you get that it depends experience. Yeah, you definitely feel it on the customer side because there's there's so many touch points and when they're not all great, you know that something's clearly not resonating throughout the organization. So I always like to end these things off, trying to make it as actionable for the listener as possible. So for the folks at home who are trying to make their organizations more customer centric, what's one step in the direction that they can take tomorrow? What's something that's low hanging fruit that they can implement in the near future to make their organizations more customer obsessed? One of the big things I've been doing with people, and it's changing everything, is to build, instead of a journey map, look at your journey map, first of all. And if it is about your sales pipeline, you have not built a customer journey map. You have built a what we want to get from customers map. (laughs) Instead, build a goal map. A goal map is something that defines the things your customers need to achieve because they've given you money that you want to have their memory tied up with, which is as a result of doing business with you, they've achieved this and the goals of their business. So as an example, in let's say a SaaS company, it would be the first step of a goal map I call is what I call no strings attached giving. Make me smarter about what problem I'm trying to solve. Make me smarter about what's happening in our industry and the changing trends and how I need to think about this. Help me define specifically what I need to solve for. Help me sell this inside my company. Help me implement it without any disruption. Keep me solid. For another way to think about it too is also have 
a goal map that's very specific if you're doing B2B. For example, we were working with a company that sold planes, Bombardier Aerospace, to high-wealth individuals. Don't make the goals in the goal map be about your silos because, again, that goes back to what you are and what you're trying to get. So, for example, these very great people were saying, let's talk about the sales and service experience. And I said, do you think these high-wealth people really want to have a sales and service experience? They want to have a keep-me-flying experience. Keep me flying experience means measuring not how many sales and parts you sold, but instead making the key metrics, how many days are people up in the air when they want to be? How many days are they on the ground when they don't want to be? And how quickly do we get them back up in the air? And all the other operational things that have to occur in between and glued together, meaning do we have the right pilots? Do we have the right cleaning people? Do we have a concierge? Do we have the right communication? When they have to land and they don't want to, are we taking good care of them? Are we communicating? If you build a goal map the right way, it will form the basis for the glue and it will change your company. I love that because it's a perfect example of actually thinking about your customer, right? Like so many people who you know, are trying this exercise to become more customer centric, they're starting with themselves. They're not starting with the customer. And that, that approach really is starting with how do we actually make the customer more successful? Like what are the things that they need to get out of this to be more successful and everything else will just fall into place from there, I would imagine. Ding, ding, ding. Exactly. And it can be very simple. The other way to do it, though, is you don't need to hire a research company to do this. You can if you want. I mean, I facilitated lots of these, not trying to talk anybody out of getting help, but bring customers together. We've done this through Teams or Zoom or whatever you use. Bring 10 to 15 customers together and start by having them tell you about what their goals are. What do you need to achieve? Have your executives listen into it. That's what I call the Vulcan mind melt. We need to hear directly from our customers what's important for them to achieve. Then do it a bunch of times. And that's when you also have to get a one company version of the truth of the goal map. Lots of times you've got a journey map from marketing, a journey map from finance, a journey map from sales. These are pipelines. They are not the map to define the operating strategy and the behavioral approach of the organization. That's why this becomes so dissected and difficult. Very well-intended people go off and do their own thing, and we create even more dissection. And that really ties back to why it's so important to have often one person like a CCO leading this charge. That's right. And it's a really great first step. Do customer math, then do your goal map, and then do what I call your non-negotiables. Goal by goal, what will we do and what will we never do? Those then become your guardrails for your behavior. Anything else that you think the folks at home should know about either the CCO role or customer obsession? You know, a lot of people write to me and say, I want to be a chief customer officer. And that's great. I love the aspiration. But wherever you are, run what you're doing from a customer-focused standpoint. If you're running billing, run that from a customer standpoint. It's not about achieving this role, but more about achieving outcomes that are important for your customer. That will bring you and help you elevate your organization and drive growth and savor the moments of the path. In my own podcast, I always enjoy the very beginning of it, Dan, where we talk about the breadcrumbs, which is what are the things people did that got them there? Recognize that you do need to put your time in. You do need to have run these organizations. You do need to have the experiences to give you the maturity, to help you Understand that it's about the frailties of people and how they're rewarded, how they've been developed, what they think will bring them up through the organization that is part of the managing of all of this. And that takes a level of maturity and a a level of experience. So don't rush through it. 
It's great advice and probably a great place to end. Thanks so much, Gene, for this. This has been terrific. You're welcome. It's a joy and uh, good luck out there. I loved this conversation with Gene because it made me realize that the chief customer officer role can be vitally important for some organizations, but also might not need to exist in others. The ideas need to exist, but it's more of an idea than a role. Certainly, there's some value in having one person who gets up every day and makes sure the customer is at the heart of your organization, that all these checks and balances that Gene has outlined are in place. But if your organization isn't at the size or position where it makes sense to have a dedicated CCO, that's fine. You can still do the work that Gene outlines in the five competencies. You can still get that buy-in from the top that's so essential to transform your company into one that's customer-obsessed. To learn more about Jean, her approaches, and books, you can visit her site at customerbliss.com. Thanks for tuning in.